Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly. I'm the editor at large at Sports Pro. Hope you're all very well. Delighted to have back with me once again uh, Sports Pro Deputy Editor Sam Carp. Hi Sam. Hi Owen, thanks for having me back. How are you doing? Not too bad, Sam, yourself? Yeah, I'm good. Just um, just been finalising my, my group of up to six people that I might be able to see later <laughs> this week, so nothing out of the ordinary. Right, well, we'll see who's in that. Will, will one of those people be Sports Pro Digital Editor Tom Bassam? <laughs> Hi Owen, um, I doubt it, but it would be a very nice invite nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see, you're on the short list, Tom. You're on the short oh, that's list. good It's not a very long list anyway, so... <laughs> Um, we're going to be hearing a bit later on from Scott Tilton, the co-founder and chief executive of Hookit, about uh, some of the better and more impressive and less impressive uh, uses of digital channels during the COVID-19 shutdown by brands and, and rights holders and so on. Um, and we're going to be talking more generally on this podcast, just as we kind of come out of that shutdown phase and start seeing more events coming back. Looking back over the last couple of months to see who has fared particularly well and who has struggled, perhaps, um, in these current conditions. Before that, very quick reminder that we have another Sports Pro Insider Series event happening next week. That's on the 10th and 11th of June. Uh, it's looking at technology and innovation in the OTT and broadcast sector. We've got speakers from the likes of BT Sport, Eurosport. And we've got the NFL as well several others it's all free to join you can watch it live you can watch it on demand along with all of the rest of our events over the last uh, few weeks or so and indeed all the rest of our events coming up over the rest of the summer uh, head to sportsproinsiderseries.com to find out how you can register and how you can join us uh, next week right it's been um difficult few weeks i think it's fair to say for for all of us but um there have been, guys, some organisations that have shown a bit of creativity or a uh, an ability to meet the moment that maybe because, you know, something intrinsic about the, the platform that they offer or what have you or how it is that they, they reach uh, fans and some who, whether through their own actions or through kind of no fault of their own, have, have really uh, have really suffered. Um, over the last couple of months, Sam, who has struck you as having had, uh, having been able to put together a, a particularly impressive response to the COVID nineteen crisis so far? So I'm actually going to start by vouching for a league whose case might have been a little more straightforward to argue had we recorded this podcast last week. Um, <laughs> but I think you could easily say that the NFL has been, you know, somewhat successful during this period just by virtue of luck um by virtue of its position in the sporting calendar which basically means that season hasn't been affected in the same way that other leagues have um so the super bowl in february which obviously feels a very long time ago now was ultimately one of the last big sporting events to be squeezed in before everyone else was forced to shut forced to start shutting down and then you had the virtual draft in April, which just so happened to be one of the first bits of live sports programming to return to people's screens. And I mean, that that event in itself, the drafts, is something they easily could have postponed 
um, that ended up being a huge success, getting 55 million viewers in the US. But it was also it was also kind of a triumph for remote production in a way. And, you know, it was, it's something that they were able to pull off by pulling in some of their existing partners. So you had Microsoft Teams helping helping franchises communicate which players they wanted to select. Um, Verizon was providing phones and connectivity. Bose headphones were, were being used by all the participants in, in the draft. So um, in that sense, it kind of provided a bit of a window into what TV production might even look like after this. And it was interesting as well, because that event is something that's typically characterized by glitz and glamour. You know, even this year it was meant to be held in Las Vegas. Um, but there was kind of a, a human element to it with, with Roger Goodell presenting in his dimly lit basement, um, players learning that they've been picked surrounded by their families in their living rooms. And I, I think people were probably kind of more accepting if minor things went wrong because because the whole event wasn't trying to be over the top. It was just sort of reflective of the situation that everyone in the world was in at that time. So, you know, I don't, I don't think it's one of those things that will, you know, will last beyond this. I don't think it's something that's going to replace a traditional draft in the long run. Uh, you know, the whole show around the show is too big for that to happen. Um, but it is definitely something that other leagues are going to look to try to emulate if, if they have to host their own drafts remotely. Um, so, yeah, just kind of looking at the NFL as a whole, the way the kind of, you know, going back to what I was saying about its fortunate position, position, uh, positioning in the sporting calendar, the way they responded to hold that draft. Um, and I think if you're looking ahead, should things kind of carry on as they are, then it's, it's 2020 season is likely to start on time in some shape or form. Plus, it will have the advantage of having watched other leagues return to action, seen some of the things that work best from a from a TV perspective, if they, if they do have to start without fans, as well as maybe some of the things that leagues will be doing to introduce a percentage of fans back into stadiums. So while it probably won't be business as usual when, when the season does resume, they've, I think as far as the US major leagues go, you'd have to say that the NFL is the one that will emerge from this kind of the most unscathed. Yeah, Tom, did you have anything, any thoughts on that? Um, my only sort of counter uh, argument, I guess, to that would be that the problem with the NFL is, is and has always been the owners in that they are kind of extremely willing to turn a blind eye to the safety of the people they employ. Um, the fact that they are able to kind of, for years and years, stall and hold up any kind of investigation into the effects of concussion suggests that they don't really care about the players. And that could actually be a really big um, problem for them when they come back and people start getting coronavirus if that happens. So they, whilst they've kind of, they're kind of currently unscathed by the whole thing, um, they've got a lot to lose and they don't start from a position of good credit. I guess that would be my only kind of mm. thoughts. Uh, yeah, my counter argument to that. Sam, you mentioned that you you think it would have been an easier case to make last week. I mean, obviously, it's uh, something we've kind of covered in our tip-off today as well, but sort of the events of last week in the US and just sports response to that all round has been particularly noteworthy. I can't remember a lot, um, a time when, you know, sports so universally has spoken out on racism in the way that it has in the past week. Um, but obviously for the NFL, its own response um, coming out in support, it's sort of, you know, it's made itself susceptible to hypocrisy given the way that it dealt with the Colin Kaepernick situation mm. a couple of years ago. So that's kind of, you know, 
<laughs> why we're saying this argument would have been much easier to make last week because I'm sure a lot of people would have suggested that it would have been better for the NFL to to stay quiet. But as we know, it kind of the NFL enlisted um, Jay-Z's Rock Nation last year to help it respond better to these situations, um, whether it has or not. Um, I'm sure a lot of people will be debating for for a long time yet. Yeah, it's as as Tom says. I think it's starting from uh, a a position of you know less credit perhaps than than other actors for that reason for the reason of of what it's done in the past. But we shall see. We'll, we'll see if it's a, if it's a step towards something towards a more constructive attitude to some of these issues, or uh, if it's just a a, a gloss. Um, while all of these topics are, are being discussed at the level that they are um, and while we're, we're seeing these extraordinary scenes across the US. Right, Tom, who were you keen to discuss for their response to the last few weeks? Well, I mean, in terms of kind of who looks like they could come out of this in a, in a stronger position than when they entered is uh, it's not really one thing partic- particular. It's more just a kind of sports venture capital sector i guess um i mean there's a lot of leagues clubs um organizations all looking a lot financially less secure than they were in march uh and a lot of them actually are probably actively seeking investment the bundesliga um was talking about it there's been reports about serie a uh there's been a lot of talk about investment in australian sport um there's about half of the championship up for sale if you read certain sectors of media. So there's just a lot of opportunity for, yeah, for kind of private equity to come into sports in a way that, I mean, it wasn't not there before, but it's now a much, much bigger opportunity, I guess. And with that comes a lot of different kind of knock-on effects into, I mean, so for example, in Serie A, they were talking about, CVC taking part of the broadcast rights returns or taking a stake in the development of uh, Stadia. For them, there's a kind of big big opportunity to do something. And that's kind of really why I felt that they were probably the bigger or the biggest winners out of this kind of situation. If there's something, winners is a bit, uh, I guess, crude, but perhaps more Mm. accurate. Yeah, it's... it's, uh certainly going to create a lot of opportunities for investment, isn't it? Because you're going to have organizations that are in need of some cash um, and perhaps were looking to make a a particular push before. And now the prospect of of some external money coming in uh, is more appealing. And and perhaps the the balance of that, the cost of that on their side um, becomes a little bit easier to to contemplate when you know when the alternative might be might be much starker. Yeah, I mean I think rugby's a kind of a prime example of that, isn't it? Like we saw the CVC Pro 14 deal close very recently. Um although there were talks of the investment in six is it six nations I think being on hold. Um the picture in the southern hemisphere is rather more like yeah, rather more different and there's a lot of opportunity there. I mean, Rugby Australia, all of the reports about Rugby Australia recently have been negative, cutting staff, looking to cut costs. Um, so that one would be kind of prime, you, you, you'd probably suggest. And especially having had that kind of whole episode last year where they tried to create the global 
rugby championship or whatever it was they decided to call it um so yeah it, it's that for me was perhaps the rugby was maybe the one that looked the most open but I, I mean I think it you could apply it to almost anything I think what's going to be interesting I know Tom you've touched on rugby there and you mentioned Serie A obviously with rugby it's something that was you know CVC's investment was something that was floating around before this um was already rumoured and kind of in the process of happening I think what's going to be interesting to see is you know a lot of sports would have been in a position to kind of turn away some like offers from 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 private equity firms in the past um just because they would have obviously been in a much more much firmer financial footing and also you know whether it's because they didn't want to cede some control um you've got fans as well who are often opposed to anyone from outside the sport coming in and trying to profit from it um so i think what's going to be interesting in the next well i suppose the coming months the coming years is you know which sports we ne- we haven't necessarily been associated with those kind of that kind of investment in the past kind of opening themselves up to it a little bit more um whether it's out of necessity or whether it's simply because you know they do need an, uh, some sort of some sort of influx of cash on the back of what's happened yeah i guess as well it's kind of whether or not um private equity can act as a as an innovator or whether or not it sort of stems it acts to stem um updated thinking i guess because i mean they're ultimately going to be looking for returns on their investment and that might not be uh the most conducive for yeah innovating in a particular sport leagues or organizations taking safer bets because they know they've got to bring in cash for their uh sugar daddies and of course the other thing that that brings up is what the exit strategy is for any of these investors if they are looking at it as um you know something that they they want to keep seeing uh, they want to keep getting income from, keep seeing some kind of dividend out of, or whether it's something that they're hoping to turn around um, and sell in better days, in which case you have the whole debate again a few years down the line, um, whether or not a particular sport is in better shape or a particular property is in better shape. Sam, who else do you think has, has fared well out of um or or responded well uh to this crisis so i'm going to use esports as a bit of a segue into what i actually want to talk about here um (laughs) (laughs) just to kind of touch on competitive gaming quickly because you know there has kind of been a bit of a general acceptance that esports has massively benefited from sport being on hold um but I'm sort of, I'm a little less convinced just because you know esports hasn't been exempt from having to cancel some of its own events. You looked at if you look at last year, the Fortnite World Cup at Arthur Ashe Stadium is kind of one of the it was one of the big events that sort of helped esports break into the mainstream in a way, or not necessarily break into the mainstream, but got people talking about it. You know, to see an event that's sort of a thirty million dollar event being played at a traditional sports venue, it is kind of the fusion of those two worlds and you sort of looked at it and you thought right okay that is how that is how sports and esports can kind of leverage each other each other effectively and kind of coexist together and um and you know yeah and sort of drive each other forward but i think i think a lot of that new audience that has been tuning into esports competitions during this period um you know they've been tuning into those that have been run by the premier league formula one whatever it's not they're not necessarily they're not interacting with you know your Overwatch leagues, your League of Legends, your um, 
the Call of Duty leagues, you know, the ones which kind of make up the esports ecosystem year round. Um, so I think a lot of those audiences have actually been brought, been drawn in by the opportunity to engage with some of their favorite athletes that have been competing in those tournaments. So in a way, it's kind of esports has sort of acted as a tool for a lot of these leagues while they're on while they're on pause to still generate some sort of engagement, some level of interaction, which sort of leads me on to my point, which is that it isn't necessarily esports that has been the big winner during this. It's rather the types of platforms on which it's consumed. So if you look at Twitch, for example, Twitch has seen a big spike in engagement as it, you know, it was hosting a lot of the esports competitions that were cropping up. But it was also a place where teams such as Real Madrid were live streaming past matches, having players who were involved in those games talk about them and, and answer fans' questions. And I mean, in, in, that was something that was sort of happening prior to the pandemic. You know, platforms such as Twitch, sports were starting to experiment with it. Um, interactivity was something that more and more sports were keen to sort of introduce to their broadcast. But I think it's something that's only going to be accelerated after this because... I think this period has kind of given people a chance to try those platforms or maybe discover those platforms when they might not have done in the past and, and the viewing experience that comes with it. And I suppose now might even have a kind of expectation that the interactivity those platforms provide will be integrated once live sports does get back underway. So, I mean, that, that could work to the advantage of a platform like Twitch, which already has features that allow fans to participate in the broadcast through polls or other extensions. But it also could work against it in a way because, you know, you have other platforms now cropping up who are going to be more aware of their need to offer those things. You know, you've seen it already with Facebook launching Facebook Gaming, its own sort of live streaming platform mm. dedicated to that. And its new venue app, which we wrote about yesterday, which NASCAR has signed up for which kind of allows fans to interact with commentators. And, you know, you could even take that further because let's not forget all of these things, you know, interactivity, shared remote experiences are going to be all the more important in the immediate term while fans still aren't allowed to, to attend live sports. So, you know, bringing fans closer to the action and, and making them feel like they're involved is probably going to be all the more pertinent in the coming months. Yeah, I was going to say that's um, that's a particular use case for this type of stuff over over a medium term period that could lead into something uh that outlasts all of this um and you know it might be we're seeing a lot of experimentation basically with with replacing the venue experience but in a lot of places fans aren't going to be able to replace the pub experience or the living room experience or anything like that for for a while or certainly um more fans than than normal wouldn't be able to so you know that kind of uh, other opportunities to to do shared viewing might become more attractive, or at least you might have had a few light bulbs going off in in broadcasters and, and rights holders' heads over the last few uh, last few weeks. Um, Tom, any more on your on your account? I mean, yeah, I think the kind of major standout one has got to be the Bundesliga, right? Um, it's I mean, it's probably more of a triumph of. Germany than it is a triumph of the league itself. I mean, the league itself is a it's a smart league, and they do things. They've they've done things well. They were they were the first first to return to training in Europe and um, of the major leagues that is, apart from the ones that kind of never really went away. Um, yeah, first to return to training, got their games back on months ahead of anyone else, and showed kind of that you can show show what you can do uh, in this in these situations. Um, they 
not been too gimmicky with what they've done. They've allowed the broadcasters really to kind of experiment with what they do on, on that kind of side of it. And yeah, it, it bore out really in that kind of first weekend back when you looked at the ratings that they got, not just in Germany, which are massive, but um, in the UK, in the US. Uh, it was, yeah, that will ultimately serve them as a league better down the road too, because people are going to be more aware of the fact that actually there is this great football league in Germany that just got a one month window to advertise itself while nothing else is on. Yeah. I think it speaks to your earlier point as well, Tom, about, you know, the Bundesliga probably did go into this, uh, into this moment with, with a degree of credit among fans groups, you know, it has a a particularly strong relationship uh, among elite football leagues, at least with, with its supporters, uh, it has leadership who tend to be quite transparent and quite uh, clear in the way that they communicate. And as you say, the wider, you know, the wider infrastructure, the wider processes around testing have been better, not just there, in, sorry, not just in the Bundesliga's case, but across the country. And uh, all of that trust has kind of fed into a, has kind of given them a, a, a better platform to build on. Yeah, I mean, they've also got a, a direct commercial platform to build that on as well. Coming up later this month, they go to market with all of their domestic broadcast tenders so they can turn around to those those partners that they've managed to deliver games back to and say, look, we did this for you in this crisis. What can you do for us? Um, the only one really that's kind of fallen by the wayside is is Eurosport, who never really seemed to, seem to be able to make that work. But mm. I think... The likes of Sky Deutschland, um, The Zone, uh, Amazon Prime, who've become involved uh, in that kind of picture, there will all be much more readily readily available to get around the table. Having yeah, having had that as a fresh in the memory experience of working with that league. You're listening to the Sports Pro Podcast. Well, not everyone has had quite such a, a good experience of the last few weeks. Sam, who are who are, who are some of the organisations you feel have, I mean, this has been a setback for everybody, but have, have particularly suffered um, from, from the shutdown? Yeah, rather than sort of hone in on a specific organisation, I think I was, I mean, there are quite a few that I can name, but um, I was going to just talk about women's sport at, at large, really, just, um, just because it was kind of, it seems personal and given that it was about a year ago that I was putting together a report for our magazine on, last year being a massive tipping point which I guess which it still was but um, it does feel like now there's a risk of some of that momentum being lost and I know just before kind of all of this started to unfold and I know that you wrote a column on women's sport after 86,000 people had piled into the MCG for the women's T20 World Cup final which was kind of just sort of the image of that was kind of indicative of the potential that women's sport had and it Sort of probably should have just been one milestone of many more milestones that would have happened this year. Uh, but yeah, now I do think there's a real concern over what the future holds and whether female leagues and competitions are going to be the priority for sports that ultimately are going to want to start making back some money as quickly as possible. We've seen it already here in the UK with the with the cancellation of the Women's Super League season. We saw it in Australia where the AFL women's competition was cancelled in the midst of its finals series so it does feel a little like some of that momentum that a lot of people have worked so hard to build 
could be stemmed. And it also just sort of serves to highlight that, you know, for all of for all of the talk recently of the the momentum that's been building, it's still in a very precarious position. It's still quite delicately poised from a financial perspective. Mm. Um, in terms of its development, it's absolutely nowhere near the men's game, and it's kind of evolving at different paces in different countries. So, you know, you've and um, you know you've also got to factor in that we're looking at quite some time before female athletes are going to have the spotlight again. Um, you look, you'd have looked at Tokyo 2020 this year, obviously, which would have been great for that as the Olympics always are. But in the immediate term, the only events anyone is really talking about coming back are the men's. So realistically, you're looking at 2022, maybe when the women's Euros have been postponed until possibly next year with the women's cricket world cup in New Zealand. If that goes ahead as planned, you know, that's sort of maybe, you know, it's not until next year, the year after, when, when women's sport is going to have the same attention that it did last summer. So so you get the impression that, you know, it is going to require buy-in, it's going to require investment from everyone, um, you know, the sponsors, the broadcasters, the governing bodies, which, you know, I've said already, is it's, that's not too much of a departure from what the message was before this happened. So I think in a sense it is good that that women's sport is being talked about as part of the re- recovery process that people are concerned for its future which i'm not sure it would have fo- it would have been as prominent a part of the conversation maybe four or five years ago um yeah but obviously that goodwill doesn't necessarily translate into the money that it's going to need to sustain a lot of these leagues and a lot of these teams yeah and unfortunately one of the things that we've seen is leagues that are coming back and competitions that are coming back the organizers have not been able to make the same guarantees um for women's leagues you know for their for their equivalent women's leagues except for um a few examples like the Bundesliga again but the i guess the the the, the opportunity that exists or or the the mentality that needs to be adopted i guess is is probably not dissimilar to what it would have been going in which is to communicate to people particularly sponsors and, and broadcasters to an extent, but in terms of revenue, it will be and partnership. It will be sponsors. The opportunity to to get in to something that has a lot of potential and to do things a little differently and and take things forward in a different way. Yeah, I think it still presents a a really great like a value opportunity. Like um, women's sport is still kind of a, a a good investment in that regard, and that like there is will to help it grow and there is will to kind of see it become yes yeah, so it's see it's be more elevated than it currently is and actually it's not going to require the same levels of investment to to make that happen than you might be to to save some of the some of the men's uh, equivalents um and that might be a, again a sort of bit blunt but it's a kind of if you're presenting that on a balance sheet it's not the worst way of thinking about it okay tom anyone anyone you think whose star has descended uh, in in the last few weeks, um, mine's uh, individual, which might be a little bit harsh, but um, uh, Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, is up until probably uh, October last year, he'd had maybe the kind of most credit in the bank of any major league sports commissioner, probably worldwide, uh, given how well he's handled the growth of the NBA in the recent years, um, and then. Then he had to deal with a kind of a global dispute with China, um, which he did. I mean, you could probably argue that he came out with, again, kind of in good credit, 
stood his ground to to a greater extent than some might have done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you probably couldn't imagine Roger Goodell doing the same thing. But then, yeah, I, the NBA since since it kind of took a, a quick and early decision to suspend its season has arguably fared no better than Major League Baseball, which looks in a real mess. Um, and when you think about it, the NBA is a kind of it's an indoor sport. It should be a relatively easy kind of yeah, a relatively easy sport to host behind closed doors. It's not got the same kind of problems with massive, massive crowds that football or soccer does. So you, the kind of practicalities aren't shouldn't be as difficult. But then you are dealing with a kind of a very strong league union body. So he hasn't found that. I'm surprised basically that the NHL has managed to come come to a solution over what it's going to do before the NBA has. Really, when you think about it. Mm. Like the the NHL is not kind of held up globally as a kind of fantastically run organisation all the time, but it has done a better job in this circumstance of getting together what it's going to do with its season. And so far, we still don't really know what's going on with the NBA. They keep on saying they're going to have votes on this date and that date. And are they going to play at Disney World? Are they going to have people uh, have have it in different hubs? It's not been it's not been clear. And mm. when it comes to Adam Silver, you've expected better. And that's probably why I'd say he's, yeah, that's probably, that's why I've kind of put him forward as a, as a person that's not come out of this in the same, leaving, leaving this situation with way less credit than he entered, I guess is the most fair way. Yeah. It's a, a relative pick. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but it is interesting. And I, I, you know, one of the things that not all leagues are on the same footing with is, you know, the incentives that they have to come back. The NBA, yes, is, is further away from crowning a champion, I guess, than than some competitions are, particularly, you know, European football leagues that have been able to come to some kind of uh, arrangement as to, you know, uh, some kind of arrangement to settle the season on sporting terms. Um, and the NBA is not yet at the playoff stage. But equally, I guess it is a few years from the end of a TV deal um, and perhaps... The will is not the same as it is in some other areas to to see it all come uh, come racing back. Not to sort of not to leap to the defence of Adam Silver, but um, I think what you were saying is kind of right in the sense that you know we do we have always thought of Silver as you know this cool operator who gets things done and gets them done without much noise going on in the background. Um, but I think it kind of speaks to you know the complexity of getting these leagues back underway, um, the fact that maybe the NBA has struggled. And if you do look across the US, you know, as you said already, MLB is in a bit of a pickle. Um, MLS, uh, the latest report suggests it's on course for a lockout. And, you know, the NHL being the only one that looks like it is, has got a you know set plan to return. It maybe sort of speaks to the fact that perhaps, you know, different parts of the world, different league structures, um, you know, makes that situation a little bit harder to overcome. So I don't know if you look here with the Premier League, the Bundesliga, I don't know, their, their return seems a little bit more smooth sailing than these, where you've got to hammer out these agreements with players' unions. The US is a place is just so much more vast. You've got so much more land to navigate in terms of the transport of teams. Um, there are so many more teams in each of those leagues. So I don't know, I think it's just, it's an interesting comparison from a geographical perspective as well. Um, just, you know, comparing perhaps some of the different obstacles that different leagues in different parts of the world are having to overcome. All right, well, we will leave it 
at that for the first part of the Sports Pro podcast. Uh, Scott Tilton, the chief executive of Hook It, will be joining us in part two to talk through uh, some of the activity we've seen from brands and rights holders in the digital space over the last month or two. Back after this. Help us spread the word about the Sports Pro podcast. Subscribe, like and share our content on social. Join the conversation on Twitter with the hashtag SportsProPod. And if you're enjoying our work, why not leave us a rating and a nice review on your podcast platform of choice. And if you want to get in touch, you can send us an email, podcast at sportspromedia.com. The Sports Pro Podcast, we're listening to. Scott Tilton, co-founder and chief executive of Hook It. Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Thanks, Wayne. Yeah, great to be here. Good to have you here. Hope you hope you're keeping well. Yeah, it's been uh, an interesting kind of uh, new norm working from home, and uh, but settled in nicely. And you know, we're on now. It's been almost three months, so yeah, it's been uh, yeah. an interesting time for sure. Well, let's take it back to the start of that period. Um, you know, when when we started to see events being shut down and uh, and and lockdowns being enforced in the US and and around the world. Um, what happened to the digital activity that we saw from rights holders and brands during that early period? Yeah, we, we did a, a pretty deep analysis and uh, looking at the month leading up to the shutdown and then each month thereafter and just kind of what was happening from a trend perspective. And so we evaluated all the social activity for athletes, teams, leagues, event properties. And, you know, the first month saw probably the biggest decline in just actual activity. So the total number of social posts, you know, for the month after the shutdown compared to the month before um, was down 48 uh, percent. The interesting part, though, was that the average engagement per post was actually up 15 percent. So even though they were posting less, they were getting higher engagement per post. Um, and the interesting part that the value on post promoting brands was up also about 21 percent. Things changed pretty dramatically in the second month where um, the actually they started posting a little bit more where uh, their number of posts were only down 32% to the month prior to the shutdown, but the actual engagement on the post was down 35%. So I think the consumer and fan behavior, uh, they were engaging less on social than they were in the month following. Uh, But the interesting part was that uh, when it comes to brand value and how rights holders were promoting uh, sponsors and brands, that fell off a cliff. You know, so the total number of posts promoting brands was down 74%. Total value was down 78%. Um, So, yeah, it was just a massive fall off. And, I mean, it was really to be expected because a lot of the brand partners that we work with, they didn't have a real, you know, meaningful expectation of, of athletes, teams, and leagues doing anything to promote them. It just didn't feel like the right time, you know, with everything that was going on. So that was, so the data, you know, I think is to be expected and no one was really expecting to be promoted during the pandemic with, you know, everything, the whole focus was on supporting, you know, being there for your family and teammates and, you know, employees and such. So, um, so I think that's all to be expected. And, uh, but, you know, we do expect that to start rebounding again now with sports coming back online. So, uh, but yeah, it's, it was a pretty turbulent two months following the shutdown. So once we got out of that initial few weeks, once people uh, became accustomed to what the conditions were going to be, got used to the, the kind of at-home reality, what, what kind of change did we see from brands through those kind of, I guess, the six to eight weeks that have taken us up to this point? 
Yeah, so I, I think that it, it really depended on the type of brand. When you look at the kind of global brands like Coca-Cola and, and um, Anheuser-Busch or Budweiser, you know, they clearly had shifted their efforts into, um, you know, supporting their the causes that they that their brands are focused on. And it was very, uh, very much less about commercial marketing and and uh, that type of activity. And I think some of the smaller brands were really just trying to navigate some really turbulent times for their businesses. So, I, mm-hmm. you know, it just doesn't feel like social and marketing was really a, a very big priority for anyone. Um, I think that that is now starting to change, uh, but we did see, you know, a number of of brands that did do a really good job in some categories that still were able to kind of maintain. Um, the NFL was was probably the biggest kind of standout. Um, they had, of course, the the draft to benefit from, and the NFL as a as a league just did a tremendous job, you know, executing that and pivoting to make the entire thing virtual. And, um, you know, as a result, like most of the teams, their engagement was actually up. And there was an interesting kind of standout with with Bose Headphones, who is an NFL partner. And they were by far the number one brand in terms of uh, value increase for the month following the pin or the shutdown uh, prior to, or to the month prior. So they saw a 420% increase in actual uh, adjusted ad value as a result of the draft. And uh, it was kind of twofold was one, they just did an amazing job collaborating with the NFL as, as the league, as well as uh, collaborating with all the teams. And they uh, did a campaign called Sound Up, uh, where they worked hand in hand with the teams and, and as also with the league to make sure that their rights were protected. And uh, they just did a flawless job executing that campaign. And they just saw a massive increase. Yeah, so they did a really, really good job. And it just kind of proves that the power of social and um, and brands that are being really intelligent about how they're leaning into it, like Bose, is um, is you know really good to see, and they were able to do it in a very tasteful way, and and you know activate in a in a really rough time. So, uh, but far and away though, the rest of the categories were were um, you know struggling a little bit because I think a lot of the teams and leagues uh, there there were challenges with content. They didn't know what to post and you know how to kind of shift gears and, and change direction. You do have teams that I highlighted in uh, the last article with you guys, like McLaren, who they've had this content engine in place for a number of years now, and they've always had it. So they were able to kind of pivot and and do a really good job and also see an increase in total engagement and value to their sponsors. And uh, But uh, teams that weren't really set up for this in, prior to the shutdown, you know, were struggling to kind of change course. And um, so, yeah, so it's it was definitely a mixed bag of, of what was going on out there. Yeah, so I mean, in terms of, those those organizations that were, were particularly effective did it tend to be that what they had in common was that they had you know they they had um those mechanisms in place to deliver content on social uh in a meaningful way beforehand yeah that seems to be you know they already had in their dna a focus on social and they already, you know, had their machines in place to be able to generate content and and do things. And uh, so, when what we were finding that was interesting was, you know, the leagues and teams that did a good job of keeping their fans up to speed on kind of, you know, anticipated return to, to play and um, events coming back online, and just doing a good job of maintaining that kind of dialogue and the narrative with their fans were the ones that were able to maintain. Uh, but yeah, the content piece was was definitely a big aspect of it. So if, if they already had the systems in place to be able to produce content and 
and really just change their content strategy versus, you know, having to put a system in place. Uh, they were able to maintain and, and actually capitalize on on everything that was going on. And, you know, again, I think it was, it's a challenging time. So a lot of people don't know how to behave in a pandemic. So mm. what's right and what's wrong. And, um, but I think the ones that were kind of making the most of it were just being very real with, with their fans and, and especially on the athlete side, uh, the athletes for the most part didn't see a decline at all. Um, in most cases they were actually up because they were just doing a good job of like keeping their fans up to speed on what they were doing during a stay at home order, you know? So, um, like what they were doing to maintain their training regimens and, and how they were kind of using their downtime. And so those types of things, uh, athletes had a little bit of an easier task to be able to maintain, uh, their social engagement and their social activity. Where did we see the most engagement over the last couple of months? So yeah, the NFL far and away saw the, uh, the most kind of, uh, incre- the biggest increase. And a lot of it was because of the draft, but when you, go down the list of which teams saw the biggest engagement increase. Uh, the Cincinnati Bengals saw a 412% increase. Uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, a 343% increase. The Timberwolves, a 223% increase. So there, you know, there was definitely, you know, massive increases there. And, you know, the Buccaneers obviously signed Tom Brady and, but everyone kind of benefited from, there was a lot of activity happening throughout the month of April, you know, in the NFL so the, as a league and all those teams, you know, all benefited from, you know, the opportunity that they had with the draft. And how, how did that change across each platform? How did um, different kinds of content and, and different uh, brands and, and rights holders do? Yeah, so we're still seeing, um, you know, Instagram is, is definitely kind of one of the more dominant platforms as well as Facebook, um, you know. Twitter's hanging in there, but yeah, I think Instagram and Instagram stories are, especially with the athletes is, um, is kind of the biggest kind of go-to these days. And in some cases with the athletes that we're working with that we're seeing as much as 50% of their value coming from stories. Um, the only challenge with Instagram is, you know, there's, there's new restrictions in place, so you can't track stories very easily unless the athletes and teams are authenticated. So you have to kind of balance that with, being able to justify your value and your content strategy, but then also making sure that you're able to report on kind of what you're doing. So, uh, but yeah, Instagram is definitely still kind of the dominant platform of the big, the big four. And did we see anything across those platforms that suggested, um, you know, a, a change in use? I mean, one of the things that was talked about, particularly in the first month or so, was the decline in in mobile traffic, for example, uh, relative to desktop traffic. We saw kind of things that had been years and years and years uh, in development changing because more people were working uh, and staying at home. But what was that reflected in, in, in how social was used or did that still tend to be more, uh, more of a mobile first activity? And also, you know, as a result, you'd, you'd see more mobile first content and, uh, and, and activity uh, and posts rather um, performing well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think mobile first for sure. Um, because you know, most everyone is kind of doing everything from their phone. Uh, so yeah, I think that's still the primary kind of go-to is, uh, you know, being a mobile first strategy. When we look at, you know, the types of content that was trending really well, um, you know, obviously like COVID-19 awareness was number one, like just people kind of talking about what was going on, but then it got, when they got a little bit more personal, 
things like life in quarantine, um, you know, participating in trending moments and challenges that they were facing. So when they became more kind of real and human, um, those were really the top three and it was all COVID related, you know, so just general awareness, challenges that they're facing during the pandemic and then what their life in quarantine, what are they doing at home? You know, those were the top three. Um, then from there, uh, when like uh, you saw that a lot of this with the teams and the leagues was um, archive footage. So like the Chicago Bulls did a really good job because they were, um, they were really kind of, you know, capitalizing on the last dance with Michael Jordan. But a lot of the content that they were posting to social was, you know, archive footage of, you know, games with Jordan back in the 90s. And and a lot of those posts were trending just really, really well because people hadn't yeah. watched footage like that in a while. So um, so they were doing a good creative job of kind of blending the two. But uh, yeah, archive footage was the kind of the biggest kind of actual sports content that was that was trending, you know, beyond just general COVID awareness type stuff. Yeah. Did we see the types of footage? I mean, it's interesting that you, you bring up um, the last dance because that was one of the only things, you know, particularly in the in the sports space outside of news stories uh, to do with, you know, negotiations about coming back or, or, or what have you. It was one of the only things where uh, people were following a story and, forward motion you know and watching each episode and, and getting invested in uh, in some of the personalities that were involved um, did you see more generally trends move more slowly because of the fact that uh, because of the fact that everything was in a kind of stasis yeah I think it's um, not necessarily move more slowly I think uh, just the way that people were consuming content and uh, I think everyone was kind of learning what what would what can they post that would resonate with fans because they're so used to posting actual you know sports content and mm. things that are happening during events and when they're on the road and all those that kind of normal things but when you're locked up at home um you have to kind of rethink all of your content so um so yeah i think it's just you know it's just an interesting thing to see how people adjusted and the types of things so like steph curry was um doing the challenge with, you know, Callaway and, you know, trying to get the ball in the, in the coffee mug, you know, so there's just things like that that are just funny and, and interesting to watch. And, uh, and just the personality that comes out, you know, when they're, cause they're all still competing at doing other challenges at home, you know, versus what they're doing on the field. So, uh, so yeah, I think it was just an opportunity to, for people to see who, who these athletes and personalities are, you know, off the field. This is the sports pro podcast. You mentioned the performance of Instagram and the kind of confirmation that, um, you know, it, it is now the, the dominant platform, particularly for uh, for new content and, and branded content and stuff like that. Um, how did we see the other platforms performing and how did we see how did we see brands performing on those? You know, I mean, there was obviously a lot of conversation around TikTok and a quite aggressive marketing campaign in the kind of areas that you're almost surprised to see a social network at, at, at that stage of its development. But what kind of things will we be seeing from, from the other platforms? Yeah, so um, roughly half of the value um, came on Instagram. And, you know, so that's when I mean it, it's still the dominant platform. Uh, yeah, it was about half of the platform or half of the value. And then um, then 38% came from Facebook's and, or Facebook. And then uh, so both of those two saw, you know, a slight increase, um, but then Twitter saw a slight decrease. So only 12% of the value. So looking at those three, 
uh, and that universe of value happening, you know, th those are the numbers. So 50% of the values on Instagram, 38% on Facebook, and then 12% on Twitter. So, um, so yeah, there are, you know, platforms like TikTok that are coming on really strong and they're, um, you know, it's, it's, it'll be interesting to see how it develops. They still don't have an op open API to be able to fully track what, um, what value is actually happening on there. And the demographic definitely skews a little bit younger. So, um, but as soon as it's available, we're, we for sure will be adding that as a platform to demonstrate what can be done on there. Uh, but it's, it's always nice to see a new platform emerge and, um, you know, to take on some of the bigger platforms. It strikes me that that kind of slight migration towards Facebook and, and Instagram, although obviously they are, uh, you know, in terms of user base, they're, they're, they're the dominant platforms anyway, but that shift in that direction would suggest that it's people going back to personal networks, basically, you know, friends and family and all that kind of thing who they might keep up with on Instagram rather than news media and, and sports media and, and things that they're interested in on, on Twitter. Would that be a fair assessment or was there something else going on there? Uh, no, I think that's a fair assessment. You know, it's a very kind of fluid, fluid uh, industry and, you know, things kind of emerge and, and audience audiences shift and you know it's kind of the the really fascinating part about social media is that you know back in the early days it was myspace and then facebook and um then youtube came onto the scene and you know so i think it's going to constantly be moving so the industry is going to have to be you know in a constant state of evolution you know because it's not as straightforward as it used to be where you have fans and stands and and uh and viewers on tv now you have all these new platforms and um, and the audience is just constantly moving. So it's going to be up to the industry to, to stay on point with how they're addressing that challenge. Uh, when it comes to the things that you've seen over the last uh, couple of months, how much of it do you think is, is going to be temporary? How much have we seen trends that, we, that, that we're developing going into this, gathering a bit of momentum? And, and how much do you think the seeds of something, something different might have been planted? Yeah, I think... Um, we talked about this on your on the panel with you guys last week with um, James and Amir from Coca-Cola and Budweiser, but I think there's just so many unknowns at the moment that we're all still collectively trying to figure it out. Uh, but I did kind of say it last week was that I do feel that this is kind of a giant reset button where the industry and the um, how partnerships have been structured, all of it is going to have to be revisited. You know, and I think people are going to be thinking very differently about things as partnerships come up for renewal. You know, you have the bigger brands like like Coke and Budweiser who are very long term partnership or have long term partnerships in place. And then and then when you get into this, some of the smaller, more endemic brands who are scrutinizing every dollar right now and, and really struggling to evaluate their partnerships and which ones are working and which ones aren't. I think that whole model is going to evolve very quickly. And we've been talking about the need for the sponsorship model to evolve, where this idea that it's largely a black box and understanding the ROI and, and uh, the value that's coming out of it as, is largely unknown. That needs to change. And we've been you know, really focused on helping brands do that and get the clear data and the insights and the recommendations on how they can improve things. Uh, that's been our focus for years now. And I think... Uh, this pandemic, you know, good or bad is it's um, it's, you know, opening up the eyes of everyone in the industry that, you know, the way that these partnerships are structured and the way that they're evaluating the success needs to be kind of reconsidered. So what are, what are people on each side of a deal 
now need to understand about how how their partnerships need to be put together? You know, we've never been in a situation like this before where where you don't have events, you know, and I know they're coming back now, but for two months there, two plus months, the on the rights holder side, if that's your only product that you're selling against and then you can't have them and you don't have a plan B, then what do you do? So I think the interesting part is that, you know, I think people, everyone's scrambling to get uh, to make good on what the deliverables were. So if there were events that were supposed to take place and didn't, they're all coming back online now. And, you know, even looking at motorsports and things like Supercross, where they're going to run the remaining seven races over a couple of week time frame. So they're going to get all the races in, but it's not the same experience that, um, that they, you know, were originally expecting. And every sport is in that position right now. And there's not going to be fans to, you know, be at the games and events. So I think there's going to be just a lot of, discussion between the rights holders and the brands in terms of how do they make good and and you know adjust strategies and initiatives to make sure that they're delivering the value that was originally promised um and it's the thing is it's no one's fault it's just a new norm and it's the way that they have to kind of revisit things so it's just going to be um it'll be interesting to see how these discussions pan out because what brands had invested in uh didn't necessarily get delivered at least in the way that they were expecting. So I think the rights holders are going to have to put a lot of thought into, you know, how do they restructure things going into next year um, and future years to make sure that, you know, sponsors are made whole. And how, how quickly do you think that's going to change now? What what kind of term are we going to see that, that shift in mentality evolve? I think it's going to be pretty immediate um, in terms of, I guess a lot of it just depends on how, how partnerships are structured. And if they're multi-year long-term deals or if they're all up for renewal this year, we've talked to a number of brands that, you know, most athlete contracts are annual. And um, I know that, you know, a lot of brands are looking at how do we kind of restructure how we work with athletes and, you know, advocates moving forward and, you know, to make sure that, you know, they're putting incentive-based deals in place and that, you know, they're holding them more accountable for what they're doing for them in social and other things. But yeah, so I think deals that are, you know, the smaller brands will probably be definitely a lot quicker to re reevaluate partnerships and make sure that they're, you know, putting their dollars in the best, the most effective places. The bigger brands will probably be a bit slower because they, uh, just slower in how they approach it because they're, they have a very long-term view and they, some of these partnerships have been in place for decades. So I think, um, yeah, it really depends on the size of the brand, but I do think that, you know, a majority of these deals will start getting kind of re reevaluated very quickly. Join the conversation with the Sports Pro community. Follow us on Twitter at Sports Pro. Find us on Instagram at sportspro.media. And connect to Sports Pro Media on LinkedIn, where you can also become a part of our specialist OTT community. Sports Pro, connecting and inspiring the business world of sport. Right, that's it for another Sports Pro podcast. Thanks again to Scott Tilton from Hook It for his observations there. Thanks as well to you, Sam Karp. Thank you, Owen. Pleasure as always. As always. And to you, Tom Bassam. Thanks, Owen. Thanks for having me. Uh, we'll be back. We've got a couple of podcasts coming in the next week. Uh, so we'll speak to you then. Um, until then, bye-bye. The Sports Pro Podcast is published by Sports Pro Media. The producer is Ed Dixon. 